Well, indeed, we come to the scriptures today to highlight the glory of Christ's cross. Join me in John chapter 16. We left off last week, John chapter 16, and we are finding ourselves in verses 16 through 22. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22. And Jesus is transitioning at this point from the Spirit to himself, from his promises of the Spirit to what he will soon do in a little over, or a little under a few hours. Uh, Remember where we were in chapter 16, verse 8, where Jesus promised the Spirit's regenerating work, that the Spirit would use the apostles' testimony, by extension, our gospel testimony, to do that supernatural work of conviction. That's verse 8. The Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is Jesus' promise of Holy Spirit conviction and regeneration. And then we saw in verses 12 through 15 last week that monumental promise from Jesus that there would be a New Testament coming. Verse 13, when the Spirit would guide these men and others under their supervision and guide them into all the truth, disclosing to them what is to come. And so you have great promises that Christ gives, promises of the Holy Spirit bringing regeneration and now inspiration, promises meant to calm the sorrowful and fearful hearts of the apostles. Well, now we come to verses 16 through 22, and Jesus turns a corner, and he transitions from the Spirit's work to now his coming cross, from the Spirit's work to his cross. Transitions now to what he will do in a few short hours, what he must do, what he must do if he is going to finish the work the Father sent him from heaven to earth to fulfill. If he is going to reconcile sinners to the Father, if he is going to be accepted back into glory and then send the Spirit again as promised. And this is a necessary transition. Why? Because not only are the apostles sorrowful and fearful, but at this point in the evening, the apostles are confused. They are confused. They have not yet grasped why Jesus has to go to the cross. They do not understand what he means by resurrection. They don't understand why Jesus is not establishing his kingdom right then, right now. And so Jesus, as he begins to wrap up this final goodbye, he once again explains his death and he makes sense of his cross. Let's read the text set in our minds, starting in verse 16. And Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while 
We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but When she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. As we begin to unpack this passage, and we will look at it this week and next week. I want to begin with this statement. Set the stage. Begin with this statement. The cross of Christ is the most precious, the most wonderful, and the most glorious event there ever was. Why? Because it was on the cross where the greatest display of God's love and grace united together in one moment. It is because it was on the cross where divine mercy was personified, where holy judgment was seen, where undeserved salvation was purchased. Without the cross, there would be no hope for us. Without the cross, there would be no substitute for sin for us. Without the cross of Christ, there would be no forgiveness, no sacrifice, No justification, no redemption, no adoption into God's family. It's the most precious event that ever was. The words of J.C. Ryle, he wrote this. Christ's cross is the crown and glory of the gospel. John Stott wrote, that great and most precious of all subjects, the cross of Christ, Martin Luther wrote, there is not a word in the Bible which can be understood without reference to the cross. The cross is at the center of everything that matters for the believer. Everything that matters. The cross is where sinners are redeemed from their slavery to sin. Think of Ephesians 1. In him, we have redemption, here it is, through his blood. The cross is how the believer is reconciled to God. It was the Father's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself. How? Having made peace through the blood of Christ, the blood of his son, the blood of his son's cross, Colossians 1. It is the cross that unites believers together in one body. Christ reconciles both Jew and Gentile in one body to God. Again, how? Here's how. Through the cross, Ephesians 2. 
It is the cross where sin was paid for in full. For all who come to Christ in saving faith. Again, Colossians 2, I love the imagery. When you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. How? Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to, hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. Again, how? Here's how. Having nailed it to the cross. And to these blessings, we can add other glorious gifts, justification, Romans 5, sanctification, Hebrews 10, eternal security, Colossians 1, on and on the list can go. Everything that matters for the believer was purchased on the cross. Again, to quote Ryle, the crown and glory of the gospel is the cross. And yet, and yet because of our fallenness and because of our pride, And because of our feeble, finite minds that are unable to grasp the full significance of Christ's cross, we face a great danger. A great danger. The danger is this, that familiarity would breed contempt. That we would grow so familiar with the cross, so used to it, so used to hearing about it, reading about it, that the cross would lose its wonder and lose its weight and lose its magnitude. D.A. Carson is right when he says this, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. It's a warning we need to seriously consider ourselves. Because when the cross is displaced from the center of our lives, when we think we can move on from the cross, disastrous consequences follow. When the cross loses its weightiness upon us, the severity of sin is diminished. And we begin to compare our holiness to those around us. And our confession of sin goes out the window. But when we think often on the cross, when the significance of the cross bears heavy upon us, all of that is an impossibility. How can confession go out the window when we're thinking about Christ dying for sin? When the cross loses its center, we become proud and boastful. It's the very opposite of Galatians 6. May it never be that I would boast except in what? Except in the cross of Christ. That's our boast. What humbles us is our boast. When we lose sight of the cross, selfishness builds and factions develop. The very opposite of Philippians chapter 2. 
Listen to that passage again. We know it. It's worth a reminder. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It's one of those passages that we love to quote to other people, isn't it? This is what's expected of us, though. Each of us, verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, here's the question. How does this happen? How does this interpersonal humility and selflessness and other-mindedness, how does that develop? Here's how. It is only when we remember Christ's cross. When we, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so as believers, we never move beyond the cross. But rather, we look for more and more ways to apply Christ's cross to our lives. So that's how I want to work through Jesus' words here in verses 16 through 22. As Jesus now makes sense of his cross for his apostles, I want to take those same lessons and apply them to our own lives to show just how applicable the cross of Christ is for us every single day. And there are five clarifying lessons Jesus teaches his apostles here We're supposed to look at the first two this morning. We're going to see how this goes. We might just get through the first one. I don't know. Lesson number one, begin here. Lesson number one. Christ's cross was his decision. It's the first lesson. Christ's cross was his decision. Notice his first words in verse 16. Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer see me. Jesus knows full well that his time on earth is short. He knows what is about to transpire. Nothing will take him by surprise. In fact, we saw in verse 21, he speaks about a woman's hour to give birth. His hour is coming. The divine hour, the sovereign hour. He knows this. So understand the setting now. Jesus is just moments away from crossing the Kidron Valley and entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments away. And he knows what will happen once he does that. He knows that Judas will bring the chief priests and the Roman guards to arrest him. He knows that. Now, the question is, how does he know that? Well, he knows this because Jesus has set all of this up. He set all of it up, and he started setting this up weeks ago. Jesus knew full well what would happen if he raised Lazarus from the dead three weeks ago. He knows what would happen. He knew that he would be forcing the religious leader's hands at that moment. He knew that they would have no choice but to, and here's the verse, they would have to convene a council They'd have to get together, convene the council, and finalize plans together to kill him. He knows that. He knows the connection. 
He knew what would happen if he cleansed the temple earlier in the week for the second time in his ministry. He knows what would happen. He knew that even the first time he cleansed the temple. Think back to John chapter two when Jesus made the scourge of cords, when he drove the money changers all out of the temple. He makes a mess of the place. This is pronouncing divine judgment upon God's house. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned the tables. And to those who are selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. He has the audacity to enter the realm of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the land, and show complete disregard for them. He pronounces judgment upon them. Now listen to what John adds, though. Again, this is that first cleansing of the temple, but notice what John adds. He writes this, his disciples remembered, this is after Jesus' death, after his ascension, when he sends the spirit, his disciples remembered that it was written, and he quotes Psalm 69 now, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, often we take that as zeal just welling up inside of Jesus. But here, it's better to understand consume me in the sense of devour me. Destroy me. It's what a wild beast does when it destroys its prey. And that's what will happen to Jesus. Because Jesus has now pronounced divine judgment upon the religious leaders in their temple again. They will devour him. They will kill him. Come into our realm and pronounce judgment upon us once. Shame on you. But do it again, and we don't do anything about it, shame on us. They will not stand for this kind of thing a second time. They must destroy him, devour him, consume him. So the stage has been set, but it's been set by Jesus. He's in control of all of this. The religious leaders want him dead. They've wanted him dead for years, but now they want him dead more than ever before. They've held their counsel. Jesus must die. But they have a problem. They have a problem. They have no way to get to Jesus without exciting the crowds. Jesus is too popular. They're afraid of the people turning on them. If they do anything to Jesus in public... They might turn, the crowds might turn on them. And so they need a rat. They need an inside man. Well, that's exactly who Jesus gives them in John 12 and John 13. Again, remember back to John 12, the day before Jesus rides into Jerusalem. What does Jesus do? He accepts Mary's anointing of him with her expensive perfume. He accepts it, welcomes it. And you remember Judas's response. He says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? John's clear to make this note. He said this, why? Because he was a thief. And as he had the money bag, he was pilfering out of it. This was Judas's heart. 
And so Jesus now finally very pointedly looks at him and says, let her alone. Here he singles, Jesus singles Judas out. It's a final straw for Judas, final straw. This is the tipping point. This is the event that led Judas to go secretly, most likely on Wednesday, secretly to the chief priests in order to betray him. But the point is this, Judas goes because of Jesus's actions. Because of Jesus's actions, the religious leaders, they now have their inside man. And he was provided to them by Jesus himself. Which leads then in John 13, when Jesus exposes Judas's treachery. And Jesus orders Judas to leave the upper room to do his worst. Again, you remember what Jesus does. He says, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Jesus exposes the plot, exposes the heart. And then Jesus dipped the morsel, gave it to Judas upon which Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. The hour has come. The time for darkness to reign has finally arrived. Do this quickly. Leave the room. Go and report to the Sanhedrin where I will be later this evening. Gethsemane was where Jesus went every night to pray. Could have gone someplace else on this night, but he doesn't because Judas knows where he will be. And again, what you do, do quickly tell them where I will be, but do it quickly, Judas, because the Roman guards need to be gathered, the Sanhedrin need time to call their midnight meeting, Pilate needs to be summoned, because I need to die on Friday. I need to die when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. What you do, do quickly. Leave now. So ever since Jesus has come on the scene, the cross has been his intention. And for these last three years, but especially these last three weeks and these last five days, Jesus has orchestrated everything, everything so that his life would end on that old rugged cross. This is the timeline. This is all of Jesus' doing. The cross was Christ's decision. But the apostles are unaware of all of this. They're unaware. So look at verse 17. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me again. Drop down to verse 18. So they were saying, in perfect tense, they kept asking this question to one another over and over again. They can't make sense of any of this. What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is talking about. They can't make sense of what Jesus is doing and what he's saying. The disciples have no category for a crucified Messiah. They're not making the connections between Jesus' coming death and the Old Testament prophecies of what is in store for him. They're not connecting those things. 
But Jesus, as opposed to the apostles, Jesus knows full well what must take place. He knows the prophecies he must fulfill. He knows all of it. He knows that he must be betrayed by a friend. Fulfilling Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. He must be betrayed. He knows that he must be betrayed for the price of a slave, Zechariah eleven twelve. He knows that he must be accused by false witnesses, Psalm 35. He knows he must stand silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53. He knows he cannot open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. He knows that he must experience the humiliation of being spit upon and struck in the face. It's Isaiah 50, verse 6. He knows he must be stripped naked with his own garments being gambled away. Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. He knows he must be mocked by his enemies for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. He knows that he must experience the emotional pain of seeing his own, his own apostles flee him for their lives. Zechariah 13, the sheep will be scattered. He knows he must experience the emotional pain of hanging on the cross and looking out and seeing very few of his followers even there. Psalm 38, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my kinsmen stand afar off. He knows the physical pain Physical pain, Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53, pierced through for our transgressions. He knows all of that, but all of that pales into one other thing that he knows, and it's the spiritual torment that awaits him. He knows this. He knows that he will be forsaken by his father, and we cannot grasp that. He'll be forsaken by his father. That's Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that he'll be crushed by his father. The Lord was pleased to crush him, Isaiah 53. He knows he will be put to grief. The Lord was pleased to put him to grief. Why? Because he's offering himself as a sin offering, a guilt offering. All of that, all of that is wrapped up in Jesus' prediction here in verse 16 and throughout a little while and you will no longer see me. All of that's coming and this is my decision. I know all of it. This is my hour. It's finally arrived. And he knows it because he himself has set it all into motion days ago. The cross will not catch him off guard. The cross will not just happen all of a sudden. Again, back to the lesson, Christ's cross was his decision. 
Keyword now, his commitment, his choice to fulfill his father's design. Now let's draw some application. Draw some application from that lesson. There's four applications here. Based upon Christ's commitment to his cross, here's application number one. We, recipients of the cross, we must be committed to crucifying sin in our own life. Christ's commitment to his cross, applying it to ourselves, we must be committed to crucifying sin in our own life daily. This is the application Paul makes in Romans 6. Because we are united to Christ through faith, because of that, because of our union with him, when he died, we died. His death for sin was our death for sin. And thus, his commitment to be crucified for sin must be matched with our commitment to crucify our sins. Again, this is Romans 6. Our old self was crucified with him, Paul says. Our old self was crucified with him. Why? Why? Here's the application in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died with Christ, through faith, we've died with him. For he who has died is freed because of Christ's death for sin. We're now free of sin. Our union with Christ demands that. We've been freed from the power of sin. This is why Paul will say in Galatians 5, we must crucify, same wording, crucify the flesh. Christ's commitment to go to the cross to die for sin is a vivid picture of what our commitment to crucify our own sin should look like. And if that's convicting, I don't know what is. Listen to the words of one pastor. He says, the deeper I understand the cross, the deeper I understand the cross, the more I comprehend and confess aloud the depth of my sinfulness. A gruesome death like the one that Christ endured for me would only be required for one who is exceedingly sinful and unable to appease a holy God. Consequently, whenever I consider the necessity and manner of his death, along with the love and selflessness behind it, I am laid bare and utterly exposed for the sinner that I am. This is the heart of the one who has the cross at the center of their life. We're reminded that there is no excuse for when we sin. There's no excuse. Why? Because Christ's death shattered sin's chains, freed us. And thus we must daily crucify sin in our own lives. When you're wondering what commitment you have to crucify sin, think of Christ's commitment to go to his own cross. That's the first application. Here's the second application. 
Application number two, Christ's cross is a picture of his love for us. Christ's cross is a picture of his love for us. This is John's application. John's application of the cross. Back in chapter 13, you remember chapter 13, 1, setting the stage for everything that follows. John writes that Jesus loves his own and he loves his own to the end, to the max, to the fullest extent. John 13, 1. He loved them to the end. And what we see here is that Jesus loved us to the point, to the point of having sin being credited to his holy account and thus being forsaken by his Father. That's the extent of Christ's love. He's forsaken by his Father in love for us. Why? So that we would never be forsaken by the Father. This is the extent Jesus would go because he loves us. In love, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that we can cling to this promise. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Same word. So in love, Jesus is forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. Again, that's the extent of Christ's love for us. If you ever doubt Christ's love for you, look to the cross and listen to those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, this leads directly into application number three. Application number three, we must, because of Christ's commitment to his cross, we must be committed to loving one another. We must be committed to loving one another. So we've seen Paul's application of the cross, Romans 6. We've seen John's application of the cross, John 13. Well, here's Jesus' application of his cross. John 13, 34, love one another. Love one another. How, Jesus? Why, Jesus? Even as I have loved you. His commitment to love us must also be our commitment to love one another. Ephesians 5, walk in love. That's the call. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. There's the model There's the application. And so when we fail to love one another, it is easy to say, well, they didn't love me first, right? I mean, that's easy. We've all said it. But when we fail to love one another, we have at best, at best in our fallenness, forgotten the cross or at worst in arrogance, we have ignored the cross. They haven't loved me first. Well, remember, Christ goes to the cross because he loves you. We love because God first loved us. Which leads then into a fourth application. From our love, excuse me, from our love for one another to now our love for the unbeliever. 
Our love for the unbeliever, he's application number four. Because of Christ's commitment to his cross, we must be committed to proclaim Christ's cross. To proclaim Christ's cross. Again, this is another application from Paul about the cross. For I determined, Paul writes, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ in him what? In him crucified. Again, Paul writes, we preach Christ crucified. Again, Galatians 6, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord. So we read those texts as we think of this application, we must ask ourselves, are we known, are we known for lovingly following and worshiping a crucified Savior? Are we known for that? Those are four applications. We could draw out many, many more. But I'm hoping that we are beginning to see why we can never move on from the cross. Sanctification really is applying the cross to our life in more and more ways. Well, you thought you'd get out early, you're not. Lesson number two. Lesson number two. Back to John 16. Second clarifying lesson that Jesus teaches his apostles about his coming cross here. Lesson number two, Christ's cross would end in resurrection victory. Christ's cross would end in resurrection victory. Let's not leave Jesus on the cross. Notice what Jesus adds in verse 16. Though, he says, in a little while they would no longer see him, Jesus adds another promise. And that is, in a little while, you will see me. He repeats it in verse 22. I will see you again. You'll see me, I'll see you. This is referring to his resurrection. This is how the gospel of John ends. Mary will say, I have seen the Lord. The apostles will tell Thomas, we have seen the Lord. They will see him because he will resurrect from the dead. And just as Jesus knows the prophecies of what will happen to him on the cross, he also knows the prophecies of what will happen to him after the cross. So in faith, he's trusting these. In faith, he's trusting his father here. He's trusting that his father would not abandon his soul to Sheol, nor allow him to undergo decay, Psalm 16. Christ knows how Psalm 22 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that's coming. But he also knows how Psalm 22 ends with the forsaken one in the presence of the Father surrounded by his people. He's trusting the Father to fulfill that promise. He knows the horror of Isaiah 53, but he also knows the promise in Isaiah 53, 11, that he will see those who he dies for and be satisfied. He'll see them again. So in making sense of the cross for his apostles, yes, he must die and it will be his decision, but he will also resurrect from the dead. He will live and he will see his apostles in a little while. He will be victorious over sin, Satan, and death. 
Well, again, let's draw application then. From that lesson, let's draw another four areas of application. Number one, Christ's resurrection, his victory over sin on the cross, Christ's resurrection shows us that what man means for evil, God will always mean for the good of his people. It's the first application. We can see, picture form, that what man means for evil, God means for the good of his people. If there's anything that's true in these next few hours, it is that evil will be personified and evil will have its way and we will see the most heinous sins this world has ever seen. We will see those sins being committed. Satan will have his way. Justice will be scorned. And yet drop down to verse 22. It will all be for our good. Verse 22, verse 22, I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. Man's sin will result in your salvation, your eternal joy. Well, if that's true for the most heinous of all sins, how much more can we trust God's sovereign design in any lesser sin that comes into our lives? It's the greater to the lesser. Second application here. What else do we learn from Christ's victory over sin, his resurrection from the dead? Christ's resurrection is proof that Jesus is the eternal son he claimed to be. Christ's resurrection is proof that he is the eternal son he claimed to be. It's proof of our faith, our trust. That's Paul's application in Romans 1. Christ was declared, he was shown to be the son of God who he claimed to be with power, how? By the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection confirms every claim he made about himself. Do not doubt Christ. The world wants you to doubt Christ. Well, look to his resurrection from the dead. He is indeed the son of God. Third application. Christ's resurrection assures us that the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice for sin. Christ's resurrection assures us that the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice for sin. Paul can write that Jesus was raised because of our justification. How can God, the Father, forgive us of our sins and declare us righteous in his sight? How can he do that? And still be just. It is because God the Father has accepted Christ's payment for our sins in full. That is freeing of all legalism. Freeing of all comparing ourselves to one another. The Father has accepted Christ's payment for our sins. Again, the proof is that Jesus was raised from the dead. which leads then into the fourth application here. Christ's resurrection also guarantees our future hope. 
Christ's resurrection guarantees our future hope. If there's anything we've seen over the last few years, it is that we have hoped in the wrong things. Well, Christ's resurrection is our hope. His resurrection guarantees that all who come to him in saving faith will one day experience this same resurrection. Words of 1 Corinthians 6, now God has not only raised the Lord, historical truth, fact, predicted here by Jesus in John 16, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So Christ's resurrection is a picture of our resurrection. He's the first fruits. This is our hope. This is, as Jesus says at the end of the passage here, this is where we find joy that will not be taken away. And again, we could add many more applications to these. But the point is simply this. The point is this. The cross must be central in our lives We can never move on from the cross. Let's move on to the better things in the Bible. We must heed that warning because the temptation is so strong. We must heed that warning we began with and make sure that the cross is never dismissed from the central place it must enjoy. Which brings us to those final three lessons. We'll look at those next time. Father, you have given us your son, but you've given us your crucified son and resurrected son and one day returning son. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for not grasping the significance of of that event at Golgotha. Forgive us, Lord, even now, as we consider it, forgive us for not feeling its weight and seeing its glory. Grant us a repentance that we would have Christ-centered and cross-centered minds that we would apply Christ's cross daily to our lives. We would look back at what he did to be reminded of who we are to be now, where our hope is, and then we would look ahead to what is to come. So Lord, forgive us, grant us repentance, grant us an obedience to you, grant us a greater love for our Savior. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen.